This is an ABC podcast. Last time we looked at all sorts of climate activism. But then we talked to Nick Fox, who's moving into a tiny house and changing her whole life because of global warming. I'm starting to think that we all need to do something really fundamental to save our planet. Nobody panic. I think all we have to do is change how we live and think. So that's what we're looking at today in an episode called What If We Changed Everything? Am I completely delusional? You bet I am. I mean, I haven't even changed banks yet, and last night I had a juicy steak for dinner before I bathed in some petrol. But what the hell? Hi, I'm Judith Lucy, and I'm overwhelmed and living. I just don't like how I'm living. But am I really capable of change? And can that change help not just me, but the planet? Let's not forget that the lockdowns made a lot of us want to change how we were living. Are there any big changes that you would like to make to your life now? It changes the largest story of my life, that many of the business-as-usual considerations about career and getting ahead, they all just seem so irrelevant with this larger planetary emergency that we face. And so it's become part of the dominant organising priority in my life is to, I want to use my life to do what I can. I bought a house in Hobart because I read an article on the ABC that Tasmania is one of the best places to live post-apocalypse. Our old people, when they talk, they don't talk about the now. They say, what is it that I'm doing in terms of impacts on our children's 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 children? I'd love to retire. I'd like to sleep a lot more. I'd like to focus more on myself. Having an incredible work-life balance that dips towards the life than the work. More headspace. I'm meditating more. Change dolls. Screw it up. Start it again. Paying attention to the experiences and the things that actually bring me a sense of meaning and value versus things that are advertised to do that. (laughs) Okay. I knew I wanted to make changes to my life and do more about climate change. Was the answer to all of it moving into a tiny house? Before I bit the bullet, I figured I should actually talk to someone who's done it. I know, I'm a genius. Elle Patton is the co-founder of the Australian Tiny House Association, and tiny houses have really become her life. She even lives in one of the only ones that you'll find in a suburb, actually very near me in St Kilda. I took a stroll to her beautiful place and got the inside dope. There are challenges around going tiny. I had so many moments of like, am I bonkers? What what the heck am I doing? This is crazy. So it's 7.2 metres long. It's um, 2.4 wide and it's 4.2 high. It's 20 square metres on the bottom floor. And then there's a storage unit upstairs that gives it about another five square metres. So 25 square metres in in total. And what's an average house or an average flat? Uh, I think last time I looked at it, it was about 2,000 square metres or something like that. Okay, so that is quite the downsize. Yeah, it is a bit of a downsize, yeah. 
I probably got uh, rid of about 85, 90% of my possessions to do this. As I got into it, it started to become harder and harder and I had to get more and more ruthless with myself. I found it very challenging to pass on things that I had inherited or, or things that had sentimental value. But what I found was different ways to keep those keeping digital copies of things, converting photographs to digital and with those other sentimental things that were a physical thing, I, I found people who would love them just as much, if not more, than what I did. Uh, so everything you own now sparks joy. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I, it's either something I love or it's something that's functional. I don't buy things I don't need. Most of the garden that you see out there, everything has been secondhand. You're obviously knee-deep in tiny houses. Who's interested? People from all walks of life. There are three big segments of the market. Those, those people who are looking at tiny houses to counter a desperate situation in their life, mate, whether that's uh, financial pressure or, or they can't find a rental and they're looking at tiny houses as a solution. There are people who are proactively wanting to live this lifestyle. And then there's obviously the investors who want it for an Airbnb market. But in that range, it's people from all walks of life. It could be um, an elderly uh, woman who has gone through a divorce and is an empty nester and there are millennials who don't see any opportunity to get into the current housing market. There's also Gen Xers who never had the opportunity to get into the property market either. And has it given you a sense of freedom? Oh yeah, it has. It has. It's a a whole different way of living and you need to think um, very differently even when it comes to using water and power. You monitor those things and you realise how wasteful you have been previously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, God, I bet. You don't have to live this way. It's certainly not for everybody. Well, it was time to see if I could live in a tiny house. So we went to visit Rick Butler, who'd built Elle's home and the one I was going to be staying in for three nights. Rick showed me around and I was excited but I was going to be with my partner, Michael, and I wondered how romantic a trip away could be when it involved a drop toilet. I can see some cows. Some donkeys. I may never leave, Rick. No. Beautiful little living room. We've got a gorgeous deck, loads of glass. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of heating, and that's making me very happy, mm, yeah, Rick. No, I'm no, a lady look, who look, feels they're, cold. They're very easy to heat and cool. I'm going to walk up these stairs, Rick. And uh, we've got a little bathroom here. This is very much like Elle's bathroom. So this is your compost toilet situation. And this is the compost toilet situation. I know all about the compost toilet. Great shower. I'm good. You know, I my shoulders are stuffed, and the great thing is my partner's back is stuffed. So that suitcase is probably never going to get upstairs, Rick, but there's no problem with that. Oh, great bedroom. Queen-size bed. Um... You know, I want to crack some sort of joke like, well, we'll be keeping this place busy. But, you know, I think my partner will be struggling to walk. So who knows? But waking up to this view, that's pretty fantastic. I kept a diary. So let's hear how we went. Night one at the tiny house. My partner, Michael, left at three, and it's now after 5.30. He has a serious back injury. He's out of his mind with pain. He took the wrong turn, and who knows whether he'll make it here tonight at all. 
tiny house, morning one. Well, you might be able to hear that my voice is a little raspy because not a lot of sleep was had in the tiny house last night. Because when you have two people in their 50s who both need to go to the bathroom a couple of times during the night and they are virtually slithering downstairs on their hands and knees to get to the bathroom so they don't break their neck. And because the bed is slammed up against a wall and I was on the side of the bed where I had to crawl over Michael to then crawl down the steps to get to the bathroom, let's just say Michael is a snorer. There's nowhere to run in a tiny house. I think I need a tiny house with a lift. I think I need a tiny house with a with a partner who's actually gone to a doctor and seen if he has a problem with sleep apnea. The tiny house itself, absolutely delightful. Let's talk about certain elements. The drop toilet. I thought I had no problem with the wonderful compost toilet, and I am very pro compost toilet. But um, my ass had slightly different ideas because I I was uh, very constipated there for about 24 hours and I think that was just because my ass was a little bit scared. But then when that dam burst, as it very much did this morning, I did find myself having to deal with the toilet in a slightly more hands-on way than, than I had previously and that was slightly confronting. But look, completely able to deal with that. I think the uh, the most telling thing that I can say about day two of my tiny house diary is that there is not going to be a day three. That's right, we're going home a night early because I have now not slept for two nights. And look, I think it's fair to repeat what Rick one of the owners of the tiny house said to me, having spoken to my partner, Michael, I hear you've been snored out. I would probably say that I would be more up for doing the tiny house alone. So either the tiny house has to go or Michael does. So that'll just be interesting. Uh, how have the last two days been for you, Michael? Stupendous. We're still together. I'm taking that as a win. So that was a complete failure, unless I want to end my relationship. Let's be realistic. Unfortunately, it's also unlikely that we're going to see many tiny houses in the city for a while, but God, I hope that changes. The experience absolutely made me realise how consciously you have to live. I can see how everything you own would have to have at least one purpose and or a great deal of meaning. (laughs) Thank heavens my vibrator doubles as a frame for an old family photo. My experiment wasn't a complete failure. It made me want to get rid of a bunch of my belongings. But more than that, it made me understand how much of my life I just took for granted and didn't think about. I really only think about things like my career and should I have thrown out that bottle of ammo. So maybe for me, changing my life isn't about living in a tiny house. It's just about living more sustainably and mindfully. Elle, and I think a lot of people who live in tiny houses, grow their own food. I mean, so do I. I just harvest it from the shelves at the 7-Eleven. 
If I were going to live more mindfully, whatever that actually means, thinking about how I got the stuff I put in my mouth to keep me alive seemed like a pretty good idea. That's why the title of Gabby Chan's book, Why You Should Give a Fuck About Farming, struck a chord because, frankly, I never had. Like a lot of us, I was terrified by the empty shelves in the supermarkets during the start of the pandemic. So my solution was ordering a ridiculous amount of rice from Amazon. Not only is that not great for the planet, but I haven't used a grain of it. Although I am considering making a lot of paper mache maracas. I've never thought about farming or a rural population... I mean, I've seen Wake and Fright and a lot of other Jack Thompson films, so I'm all over it. People play a lot of two-up and have sex with sheep, right? It actually sounded like Gabby had once been a lot like me. She was an inner-city journalist who grew up in the middle of Sydney, but then she married a farmer. She now completely gets how important it is to know about agriculture. I wanted her to help me understand that too. Gabby, I was, of course, extremely heartened when I read that you found yourself ordering wheat from overseas to make sourdough during the pandemic and you're on a wheat farm. Uh, you know, we literally less than 300 metres from the house is a silo full of wheat. We're in a wheat district. Surely the wheat will come from locally somewhere if you can't get it from the usual orderers at the supermarket and it turns up with German all over it and didn't I feel like an idiot? Why uh, are we so disconnected from where our food comes from? Well, because I grew up, as most of us do, getting food from a supermarket, right? So where else does it come from? And I don't want to be too hard on myself or people who who have the same experience because, you know, we've got so much else in our lives that, you know, getting food on the table is almost like the thing you do at the end of the day and make it as quick as possible. You could have called your book Why You Should Care About Farming. So did you go with why you should give a bleep about farming because you're letting people know this is really important. You know, you start with a simple subject like farming and you get end up in philosophy, in economics, in cultural issues. All these different issues are connected to farming and farming is exposed to the world's problems, you know, climate change, soil loss, water loss, you know, zoonotic diseases. Who knew? Came from a wet market potentially. So, you know, I wanted to get across the bottom line and the bottom line is why you should give a bleep about farming. Of course, it had never occurred to me that we do expect so much from our farmers. I mean, if you had to sort of sum it up, what can city people do to help? Get educated about the, the issue. Look at where your food comes from. So I always look on the cans and on the food, on the, on the ingredients label where it comes from and just think about the policy issues when you vote think have a look I don't care who you vote for just have a look at the policies are they thinking about the future for Australian landscape for uh, people who produce food 
People get involved in farmer subscription boxes. I'm seeing more and more, particularly with the high prices in the supermarket, work out, you know, how to better look after each other and whether that's through, you know, connecting with your local producer or or just getting up to speed on, on what the issues are in, with climate change, with landscape management, with food production, I think will be a good start. Can you talk a little bit about the Noongar Land Enterprise Group and what they're trying to achieve? Yeah, they're a group of uh, Noongar people in, the, in Western Australia on Noongar Land, Oral Maguire uh, is just the most amazing thinker. That whole group has bought uh, some land through the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation. He actually went to the real estate agent and said, I just give me the worst block you can find, the trashiest block. And so they set about changing it. Like, what can we do to heal this land. They had a target of, I think it was a million trees. They're teaching the people involved in that project Indigenous methods of land management, beekeeping, fuse modern life with traditional First Nation ways and also make an income out of it for the people involved. And Oral is, uh, was a professional firefighter and so he uses fire stick farming uh, and it's just such an interesting project. Gabby, you've dedicated the book to your two grandchildren, Henry and Lily. If you could wave a magic wand, what would their farm look like? How would it be different to how we're farming now? Their farm would be a mix of 20, 30% of the land given over to habitat biodiversity um, you know, producing food in ways that increased the, all of the indicators of the land, you know, in terms of carbon, in terms of, of, of its health, in terms of soil health. It would be absorbing more water when water comes. It would be a beautiful place. I think that's the thing that was underlined to me in this project, that, you know, farms and land management can have a benefit way beyond their boundary fences. This sort of thinking was what had initially attracted me to the whole tiny house idea, living in a way that was a lot kinder to the planet. Call me a guilty white dickhead who's great at stating the obvious, but maybe we can learn something about that and changing our attitude to the land from the people who've cared for Australia for over 60,000 years. Anthropologist and geographer Professor Marcia Langton has been talking about this for a long time. Her book, Welcome to Country, A Travel Guide to Indigenous Australia, is an amazing educational tool. So I knew she'd be able to tell me what non-Aboriginal people can do to protect our remarkable country from climate change. I think it's the ultimate human value. If we want to talk about love and compassion, this is how it's expressed. Preserve the environments in which our species developed, evolved, in which we want to raise our future generations. That's true love. For a lot of wealthy Australians, they live in a suburb and then they have their holidays in Europe. Mm. You know, that's their idea of being Australian. They don't know anything about their own country. 
I hope that my book takes people to these places so that they actually do develop some real Australian values and have some respect for the country that they live in and have some respect for the antiquity of Indigenous cultures that made this place what it is. Uh, They're the real Australian values. These are values that were developed over 65,000 years, not a couple of hundred years. And what people are destroying is so precious. In fact, they're destroying the planet because they hate, they hate the world that our ancestors created. They have no respect for it. If you destroy forests and pollute waterways and constantly destroy everything in your environment, you can't say that you respect the world that you live in. You can't say that you respect other human beings because you're contributing to the demise of all life on the planet. It's pretty simple, really. Yeah. Is the the best thing that non-Aboriginal people can do just educate ourselves? Oh, yeah, and make sure your children are educated. Make your schools teach children about our existence and our cultures and our philosophies, our knowledge systems, the importance of places. On the bright side, there are over a 1,000 Indigenous rangers working on Aboriginal land and Indigenous protected areas to preserve our environment. Do you know that over 25% of the conservation estate in Australia was contributed by Aboriginal people? So, yeah, we deeply care about these environments. I think it's the ultimate human value. At the start of the episode, I said that we need to change how we live and think. I got that I needed to educate myself and be a lot more considered about some of my actions. For example, it really was time to stop taking my private jet to the supermarket to buy a ton of beef while I left my taps running. Well, there goes my Saturday morning pastime. But what about changing how I think? I'd wound up making this podcast because of a study group I'd been involved in during lockdown about a book called Active Hope. I mentioned that in episode one. Christ, I'm an idiot. It's taken me until the end of episode five to realise that what I needed to do was talk to one of the authors, Chris Johnston. He's a medical doctor with a special interest in resilience. Active hope is a practice which involves three steps. Seeing the current situation, clearly identifying what we hope for in terms of the direction we'd like to move in or the values we'd like to see expressed, and finally, taking action to bring that change about. Applying those steps to something as huge as global warming had made me feel less overwhelmed and had really gotten this whole ball rolling. I hoped talking to Chris might finally help me understand what it was that I really wanted to change about how I was living. I love the idea of a beautiful life is one that's good for us and our world. Because I think there can be this artificial split between selfishness and altruism whereas the research shows very clearly that when people live with a strong sense of purpose they live longer they live more satisfying lives and 
that's another side of the climate crisis, that it funds our lives with a richness of purpose that the business-as-usual reality just doesn't offer. I think it's probably going to be easier if I just get you to sum up what Active Hope is. Active Hope is a practice for collective well-being. It's about every day saying, hey, what can I do today that will support my hopes for the future we're heading into? Addressing the question, what helps us face the mess we're in and give our best response? And that's what Active Hope the book is, is is a manual really of a collection of practices and insights that guide the reader through a strengthening, transformative empowerment process. These workshops have been carried out with hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Can you talk about the importance of gratitude in terms of Active Hope? Gratitude is a, it's a stance on life where you appreciate what's there and you recognise that others have played a role in helping that happen. You Recognise you're not alone. There's a saying, gratitude is a social emotion that points our attention outwards beyond ourselves to those that we receive from and are supported by. And just to recognise, okay, I'm part of a larger network. Gratitude goes even further than that because you only just need to take a, a breath in. You know, when we take a breath in, we just take it for granted that we take in oxygen, but that's not true on Mars, it's not true on Venus. The reason we have oxygen on Earth is because it's been put there by plant life. And it's kind of like this basic ecological literacy foundation of recognising how dependent we are on other forms of life. And it's only when we give attention to gratitude that we really start recognising how our lives are supported by this whole amazing, rich network of life on Earth. I was very surprised by the notion of approaching all of this like it's an adventure. When you feel totally stirred up by what's happening in the world, there's different ways of talking about that. And I, I like the idea of adventure stories right at the beginning they tend to start from the place of everything falling apart. You look at Frodo or Harry Potter and any of these other main characters, the threat they're facing seems way beyond anything that they can really make a serious impact on. But it doesn't stop them. And they go on this journey of seeking out allies and insights and implements that will help them. And I find that such an encouraging storyline to apply to what's happening in the world. If you feel defeated by what's going on, just say, okay, that's chapter one. And so we become part of this adventure story where the key question is, what part can I play? How has this work changed your ideas about, say, success or what a good life is? Success is often seen as climbing up some ladder, getting more or bigger or better in some way. And Really, like if you think that we're like cells in a larger body, that the idea of a collection of cells being incredibly successful while the body is dying is just a complete nonsense. Success is that which contributes to the well-being of the larger body, the larger body of Earth. And if we have that idea, okay, if I contribute to the well-being of our world, then that makes my life more meaningful. Chris, I think that I think that 
all the lockdowns have made a lot of us think, well, well, yeah, I, I need to start living differently. I think the central question is, okay, looking at what we face, what do I deeply hope for? So not just what do I hope for in the next year, but what do I hope for for the direction that we're moving in collectively over a long period of time? What do I hope for for human race? Because we can play a role in that. It maybe seem like such a tiny, insignificant thing. And this is where we would come back to active hope. There's hope as in, am I hopeful? But there's hope as in, what do I hope for? Really tapping into our deep, desires? What do I really hope for? What do I deeply hope for? There's what I call shift points. So shift points are points in time where there's what, how you are afterwards is different from how you were before. You know, it sounds like for you, Jude, if you had a shift point when you read Active Hope with another group of people Mm. and it took you on a journey. I also love the way that the book talks about the importance of trying to imagine a brighter future, because without that, how can we try to work towards it? There's a great saying, find the want behind the should. So the want is, well, what would I want to happen here? What would excite me so much that I want to get up in the morning and play my part in it? So it's not just about avoidance of this nightmare or avoidance of that nightmare. It's saying that actually there could be a better way. And this is something about the difference between a picture of happiness and a story of happiness. So a picture of happiness might have all the right things in it, but you can have people who've got all the right things in their life and they end up being completely miserable. That, you know, it's a short-term fix, but it doesn't really meet deeper needs. But a story of happiness has a strong plot and it has rises and falls and turning points and chapter seven moments where everything just seems to fall apart and be awful. But it's the way we respond to the awfulness that makes for a good story. And I think that that is what happens in our lives. It's the way we respond to the awfulness that can make our lives a good story. And then we get this feeling of afterglow where we think, yeah, you know, of all the different ways my life could go, This may not be an easy road or a comfortable road, but it's one I have my heart in. So I'll pretend to be Frodo. Actually, no, I won't. He doesn't get to have sex with Viggo Mortensen. We've come a long way from not throwing out broccoli stalks, haven't we? I'm still just at the beginning of all this, but I understand that it's not necessarily about living in a tiny house. For me, it's about changing my priorities, and that's really started to happen. I no longer care about things like getting my own TV show. Just as well, because that's about as likely as me having to buy a packet of panty lighters. Get it? My gusset no longer requires anything that involves absorbency. That stuff seems so much less important to me now. More and more, all I really want is to play a tiny part in where humanity and our planet goes from here. Good God, I'm making myself feel nauseous. But where is that? And what am I going to do if I'm serious about all this? We'll find out in the last episode, are we just completely screwed? I'm Judith Lucy, and I'm overwhelmed and living. 
Judith Lucy, Overwhelmed and Living, was written and performed by me, Judith Lucy. Producer Beth Atkinson Quinton, with assistance from Lisa DeVissey, sound engineer David LeMay, theme music Gareth Skinner, and executive producer Tom Wright. Hi everyone, I'm Naz. Hi Naz. Uh, Last month I spent $65 on subscription services and I only watched one show. My own. And uh, this month I spent $85 on beauty products for my hair and skin and I didn't even get to show it off to anyone because I spent the entire month on the couch watching my own show. Hi, I'm Nazim Hussain, and in 2021, I presented a series of The Pineapple Project all about being frugal, and I learned a lot. But I've realised since that there are huge areas of my life that we didn't get to cover, and it's showing up on my bank statement, big time. I need help. Quick. And by the sounds of it, you do too. So, this season of The Pineapple Project, we're getting even more frugal. So let's tweak our streaming subscriptions. Budget out our beauty regimens. Date without debt. And heaps more. New Pineapple Project. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you pod.